One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are about to listen to the second episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. This project is a long time in the making and is also going to be a long time in the delivery. To get the most out of it, I would really encourage you guys to join the debate on social media, whether that be on Twitter or on Facebook. Let the rest of the world know that the Versailles Anniversary Project is happening and also talk about it with other people and make the most of the fact that this is a very special time in our history. It's not every day that a centenary like this comes along, so why not do your part to spread the word and also engage in some lovely history debate at the same time. Simply join the Facebook group, like the Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast. Other than that, the best way to spread the word is simply to tell somebody about this podcast Tell them what we're doing, tell them why it matters, and tell them that if they want to find out for themselves whether the Treaty of Versailles was all that or really was all that bad, check out When Diplomacy Fails and what Zach Twomley is doing at this very weighted moment in his podcast's life cycle. Perhaps he's crazy, perhaps he's just crazy for history, maybe I'll set up a poll about that, but otherwise, enjoy this latest episode 
of the Versailles Anniversary Project. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 2. Hello and welcome to the Versailles Anniversary Project. In this episode, we'll be placing Germany of 1918 into context, and in the episodes which follow, we'll be asking those critical questions upon which so much depends. How bad was the situation in Germany by autumn 1918? What did Germany's leaders really think of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points? And what did they hope to gain by appealing to the American president in their darkest hour? To answer these questions, we must remain close to Woodrow Wilson and to the American diplomatic actions which set up the post-war era to come. To begin our narrative, though, we're going to take you to the moment when the truth was laid bare in all of its stunning glory, with a little-known speech performed before the German Reichstag, or National Parliament, by Major Freiherr von der Busch on the 2nd of October, 1918. Yes, as you may or may not be aware, this episode is a long one. It's so long, in fact, I will be inserting a break halfway through, just so you guys can take the story up again at the right point. These big episodes are necessary to cover everything that there is to be covered in this preliminary background stage, but... So long as I have your attention and your interest, this all should be fine. It's a great story here, and it's a very interesting way to look at things from the perspectives of not just the Germans, but also the Americans, and what the American president was actually doing when he tried to make something out of the German situation. Anyway, let's get down to it, and we look at this major speech on the 2nd of October, 1918. (laughs) 
The fighting of the last six days may be termed successful for us, in spite of the loss of prisoners and material. In comparison with our successes in the spring offensive, the enemy has made little progress. In the majority of cases, his continuous onslaughts have been countered with unusual obstinacy on the part of our troops. According to our own reports, the enemy has suffered the heaviest losses. The majority of our troops have fought splendidly and made superhuman efforts. Their old, brave spirit has not died out. The numerical superiority of the enemy has not been able to terrorise our men. Officers and men vie with each other in deeds of valour. In spite of this, the High Command has been compelled to come to the enormously difficult decision that in all human probability there is no longer any prospect of forcing the enemy to sue for peace. The question of reserves has been the decisive factor. The army entered the fray with depleted numbers. In spite of using every possible device, the strength of our battalions sank from about 800 in April to 540 by the end of September. And these numbers were only secured by the disbanding of 22 infantry divisions. The Bulgarian defeat has also eaten up seven more divisions. There is no prospect whatever of raising the strength. The current reserves, consisting of men who are convalescing, combed out, etc., will not even cover the losses of a quiet winter campaign. The inclusion of the 1900 class will only increase the strength of the battalions by 100, and that is the last of our reserves. The losses of the battle, which is now in progress, are, as I have stated, unexpectedly large, especially as regards officers. This is a decisive factor. If the troops are to stem the onslaught or to attack, they require more than ever the example of their officers. The latter must, and have, sacrificed themselves unreservedly. The regimental commanders and leaders fought in the front lines together with their men. I will give one example only. In two days of fighting, one division lost all of its officers, dead or wounded. Three regimental commanders were killed. The small number of reserve officers has sunk to nothing. The same applies to NCOs. The enemy, owing to the help he has received from America, is in a position to make good his losses. The American troops, as such, are not of special value or in any way superior to our men. In those cases in which, owing to numbers alone, they gained an initial success, they were finally held at bay by our troops. We can continue this kind of warfare for a measurable space of time. We can cause the enemy heavy losses, devastating the country in our retreat, but we cannot win the war. This decision and these events caused the idea to ripen in the minds of the Field Marshal Hindenburg and Ludendorff's proposal to the Kaiser, that is, the breaking off of hostilities, so as to spare the German people and their allies further sacrifices. Just as our great offensive of July the 15th was abandoned when the sacrifice entailed no longer warranted its continuation, so the decision now had to be taken that it was hopeless to proceed with the war. There is still time. The German army is still strong enough to hold the enemy for months, to achieve local successes and to expose the enemy to fresh sacrifices. But every day brings the enemy nearer his goal and will make him less inclined to conclude a peace with us which will be satisfactory on our side. Therefore, no time must be lost. Every day the situation may become worse and give the enemy the opportunity of recognising our momentary weakness, which might have the most evil consequences for peace prospects as well as for the military situation. Neither the army nor the homeland should do anything which would make our weakness apparent. On the other hand, the army and the homeland must stand together more closely than before. Simultaneously with the peace offer, a united front must be shown at home, so that the enemy recognise our unbending will to continue the war. If the enemy will not make peace with us, or only a humiliating one, 
If this should be, then the endurance of the army will depend on a firm attitude at home and on the power of the homeland to inspire the army. By the time this speech had been finished on the 2nd of October 1918, Germany had lost close to 50% of the 13 million men that she had mobilised since 1914. By the time of the actual armistice, a month later, when the relevant authorities got to grips with the facts and figures, the sheer scale of Germany's losses were laid bare, and they told a stark military story, as well as a depressing, heartbreaking demographic one. 13% of all men born between 1880 to 1899 were killed during the Great War, a number which reflects the fact that we all know that the Great War was the destroyer of the youth. This figure was actually even higher in France at 17% of all men being born between 1880 to 1899 dying, but the numbers for Germany are still worth underlying because they tell a story of resistance on all sides for over four years and the sheer cost of this endeavour. A summary of Germany's World War I casualties, compiled by the United States' Public Broadcasting Service, lists over 2 million German war dead, 4,216,058 wounded, 1,152,800 prisoners, for a total of 7,142,558 casualties. An amazing 54.6% of the 13 million soldiers Germany mobilised for the war. Based on these estimates, Germany's total casualty figure is second only to Russia's 9,150,000 killed, wounded, prisoners and missing. The historian Robert Weldon Whalen traced the growing death toll of the war with a sobering result. In 1914, the first year of the war, Germany lost 142,502 men killed in those opening four months, with August and September being by far the worst, containing 54,000 deaths each and the disappearance of over 80,000 men. The following year, the tally steadily increased, and 1915 saw the total German dead reach 628,000. In 1916, the death toll climbed to 963,501, in 1917, it surpassed the 1 million mark, with 1,271,273 killed in action. The final year of the war was probably the most costly of all, as 1918 saw the death toll climb to 1.9 million. When factoring in the deaths of sailors, colonial soldiers and other deaths, the total human cost in terms of lives lost by the Germans reaches 2,037,000. German army units lost on average about 3% of their strength each month, or over a third of their strength each year. Typically each month, about 2.4% of a unit's strength was wounded, 0.4% was killed, and another 0.4% were reported missing. Germany lost a quarter of its officer corps throughout the duration of the war. In one battle, the Kaiserschlacht, or Kaiser's Battle, also known as the Ludendorff Offensive in the spring of 1918, the German army suffered 303,000 casualties in a matter of weeks. Wounded was as good as dead to the German high command, because a man with one leg couldn't fight any more than a man who was dead and buried. The human cost for those that had been wounded but remained alive was felt not only during the war but also after it. The most unanticipated social consequence of the wartime losses 
were the enormous numbers of disabled veterans and war widows and orphans, desperately in need of care and often unable to care for themselves. In 1919, the newly formed Weimar Republic, on the verge of wild inflation, bankruptcy and political chaos, discovered that it was suddenly responsible for some 2.7 million disabled veterans, 1,192,000 war orphans and 533,000 widows. Almost all of these people were younger than 30. Considering these stunning facts and figures, we can't even begin to imagine the strain which Germany was under by the time that speech was made to the Reichstag on the 2nd of October 1918. One thing we do know, though, is that the numbers do not lie. Germany was not stabbed in the back. She was traumatised after having gone through the most catastrophic event in her empire's young history. It was above the capacity of anyone to imagine in 1914 that casualties like these awaited the Germans, but the war had touched everyone. Not even the famed commander and one half of the military duo, Erich von Ludendorff, was safe. Ludendorff lost his two beloved stepsons, both pilots, at sea, and he was only able to bury one of them. Hindenburg was luckier, but other prominent statesmen were not. Friedrich Ebert, the first president of the new German Republic from 1919 until his death in 1925, lost two of his four sons, and both in 1917. The Germans were not exceptional, of course. One example is given by the unfortunate Anderson family of Scotland, who lost all four of their sons, the last being killed during the spring offensive in 1918, while leading from the front. This depressing tale of the tape reveals an undeniable conclusion which not even the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff could escape from. With over 54% of the 13 million men mobilised gutted in this manner, Germany no longer possessed, as the Major's speech details, the manpower reserves to continue the fight. Germany, rather than France, had been bled white. The justifiable criticism levelled at the Allied tactics on the Western Front had, in the end, worked at least to the extent that every offensive, every month which passed, contributed to the grim tally of German casualties, which in the long term was unsustainable. This consideration, that of manpower, more than any other, paralysed the High Command's ability to work against the considerable disadvantages which the country now faced. No men existed to fight the countless battles which still needed fighting. Germany was not stabbed in the back then. She was exhausted, depleted, and so it appeared, defeated. She could go no further, as her losses of over 7 million testified. It was in the context of these losses and the weight of the humanitarian disaster that the once upbeat and confident duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff confirmed the worst. Indeed, the following day, on the 3rd of October, Hindenburg sent the following message to the Chancellor, Prince Max von Baden, saying... In consequence of the collapse of the Macedonian front and the inevitable resultant weakening of our reserves in the West, and also the impossibility of making good the heavy losses which have occurred during the battles of the last few days, there is no prospect, humanly speaking, of forcing our enemies to sue for peace. The enemy, on the other hand, is continuing to throw fresh reserves into the battle. The German army still stands firm and is defending itself against all attacks. The situation, however, is growing more critical daily, and may force the High Command to momentous decisions. In these circumstances, it is imperative to stop the fighting in order to spare the German people and their allies unnecessary sacrifices. Every day of delay costs thousands of brave soldiers their lives. And there it was. 
the two men who had once assured their Kaiser of victory, and only a few months before, were now informing his Chancellor that all was lost. The only hope was an appeal to peace, and to make some form of appeal which would enable the defeated army to retain its honour and reputation. The duo had known that the reality of the German military situation was grave for some time. Having effectively commanded the German war effort since 1916, both Hindenburg and Ludendorff knew a losing battle when they saw it. Both men had made their names and careers at the Battle of Tannenberg in August 1914, wherein a Russian army was decimated in an ingenious set of manoeuvres over a few days, which cost the Tsar the entire Russian Second Army of 170,000 men. Tannenberg had been a glorious, defining moment in the careers of each man, but four years later, it must have seemed like a lifetime ago. The major who delivered the above speech to the Reichstag on the 2nd of October was essentially the fall guy. Even while they were mentioned by name in the speech, neither Hindenburg nor Ludendorff could face the civilian elite of Germany and bring such bad news in person after so many years of insisting that all was well. The truth stunned those in attendance on the 2nd of October, because for so long they had been told that the war was winnable, and even that victory was near. The duo was adept at covering its bases, though, because neither man was seen to speak these words. In later years, both Hindenburg and Ludendorff would be able to perpetuate the stabbed-in-the-back myth, and both would distance themselves from facts and figures which they knew full well to be true. Interestingly, both men would also pursue political careers, which intertwined with that of Adolf Hitler. Ludendorff would associate himself with the ill-fated Putsch of 1923, and Hindenburg would die in the office of president just in time for Hitler to declare a state of emergency and imagine the office of Führer. In 1918, both men were determined that defeat did not mean disgrace for Germany, a theme which would keep cropping up over the next few months. On the 6th of October, an appeal was made to the one power that seemed to be in a position to deliver a shame-free peace for Germany the United States, and its president, Woodrow Wilson. This weighted communique on the 2nd of October from Berlin read as follows. The German government requests the president of the United States of America to take steps for the restoration of the peace, to notify all belligerents of this request, and to invite them to delegate plenipotentiaries for the purpose of taking up negotiations. The German government accepts as a basis for the peace negotiations the program laid down by the President of the United States in his message to Congress on the 8th of January 1918, and in his subsequent pronouncements, particularly in his address of the 27th of September 1918. In order to avoid further bloodshed, the German government requests to bring about the immediate conclusion of a general armistice on land, on water and in the air. Upon receiving this memorandum on the 6th of October 1918, Washington could be forgiven for patting itself on the back. Following months of pronouncements and suggestions, made both before Congress and large crowds in America, it seemed that Woodrow Wilson's efforts to persuade Germany to come to the peace table had paid off. Here at last was the beginning of a journey which was to end with the armistice. But how had it come to this? How had the German government arrived at the point where it was willing to compromise so extensively and completely, when in the past it had resolutely refused to countenance relinquishing the spoils of war. Well, this journey began in public diplomacy, more specifically with the delivery of the 14-point speech 
10 months before, on the 8th of January 1918, wherein the American president had promised the following. We grudge her, Germany, no achievement or distinction of learning or of Pacific enterprise, such as have made her record very bright and very enviable. We do not wish to injure her or to block in any way her legitimate influence or power. We do not wish to fight her either with arms or with hostile arrangements of trade if she is willing to associate herself with us and the other peace-loving nations of the world in covenants of justice and law and fair dealing. We wish her only to accept a place of equality among the peoples of the world, the new world in which we now live, instead of a place of mastery. Germany's response to the 14-point speech in general and to this little extract at the end arrived on the 24th of January from the then-German Chancellor, Count Georg von Hertling, who would resign in late September as the strategic situation for Germany became untenable. Hertling's tenure as Chancellor was reaching a high point in early 1918, and the atmosphere was in stark contrast to that which would face the Kaiser and his men only nine months later. The mood in the high command was defiant, confident of eventual success and prepared to throw everything they had at the Western Front. This mood of confidence, predictably enough, leaked into the civilian government, which was told enthusiastically when things were going well and kept in the dark when they were not. With Russia effectively defeated by early 1918 and a huge offensive planned in the West within a few months, it was to be expected that Chancellor Hertling, under orders from the military command, should stand his ground. Hertling addressed each of the 14 points individually, signalling his willingness to discuss freedom of the seas, public diplomatic procedure, and a removal of economic barriers on the one hand, but reducing matters such as Belgian independence, Alsace-Lorraine, and Poland as questions to be discussed either among the central powers or during a war conference. Chancellor Hertling also made it very clear that the integrity of our territory, including Alsace, offers the only possible basis of peace discussion. The occupied parts of France are valuable pawns in our hands. Forcible annexation forms no part of the official German policy. If Wilson wished for the 14 points to serve as the basis for any peace agreement then, it was clear that Germany would have to be taken down a peg first. So long as her military leaders understood their power to be in the ascendant and the Allies on the back foot, they were hardly going to consider a compromise. Wilson believed that war was not the only means through which the German position could be undermined. The domestic situation in the country could also be exploited to the gain of the Allies. In late January 1918, after all, strikes had ripped through Germany, and reports on their potency could certainly have influenced the President's decision to speak out again. Wilson may also have believed that by aiming at the political left in Germany, the hardline militarists could be weakened, and Germans would be more likely to request a peace. Speaking to Congress on the 11th of February, Wilson established once again his country's position with a stern rebuke of the German Chancellor's methods and stance, saying, It must be evident to everyone who understands what this war has wrought in the opinion and temper of the world that no general peace, no peace worth the infinite sacrifices of these years of tragic suffering, can possibly be arrived at in any such fashion. The method the German Chancellor proposes is the method of the Congress of Vienna. We cannot and will not return to that. What is at stake now is the peace of the world. What we are striving for is a new international order 
based upon broad and universal principles of right and justice, no mere piece of shreds and patches. Is it possible that Count von Hertling does not see that, does not grasp it, is in fact living in his thought in a world dead and gone? Is Count von Hertling not aware that he is speaking in the court of mankind, that all the awakened nations of the world now sit in judgment on what every public man of whatever nation may say on the issues of a conflict which has spread to every region of the world. There shall be no annexations, no contributions, no punitive damage. Peoples are not to be handed about from one sovereignty to another by an international conference or an understanding between rivals and antagonists. National aspirations must be respected, peoples may not be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase, it is an imperative principle of actions which statesmen will henceforth ignore at their peril. We cannot have general peace for the asking, or by the mere arrangements of a peace conference. It cannot be pieced together out of individual understandings between powerful states. All the parties to this war must join in the settlement of every issue anywhere involved in it, because what we are seeing is a peace that we can all unite to guarantee and maintain, and every item of it must be submitted to the common judgment, whether it be right and fair, an act of justice, rather than a bargain between sovereigns. With his rebuke of Chancellor Hurtling complete, Wilson then sought to add to the attention which the 14 points had received. You will note that Wilson alluded to self-determination in the above rebuke. This was in fact the first reference to that principle which the President had made. While he refused to be drawn on the question of what exactly self-determination was, and how satisfactorily it could be achieved, Wilson did determine that a clarification of the foremost important underlying principles inherent within the 14 points, creatively deemed the four principles, was necessary. Shortly after this critique of the German Chancellor then, the President elucidated on these four principles, beginning with the first. First, that each part of the final settlement must be based upon the essential justice of that particular case and upon such adjustments as are most likely to bring a peace that will be permanent. Second, that peoples and provinces are not to be bartered about from sovereignty to sovereignty as if they were mere chattels and pawns in a game, even the great game now forever discredited of the balance of power, but that third, every territorial settlement involved in this war must be made in the interest and for the benefit of the populations concerned, and not as part of any mere adjustment or compromise of claims among rival states, and fourth, that all well-defined national aspirations shall be accorded the utmost satisfaction that can be accorded them. Without introducing new or perpetuating old elements of discord and antagonism, that would be likely in time to break the peace of Europe and consequently the world. A general peace erected upon such foundations can be discussed. Until such a peace can be secured, we have no choice but to go on. So far as we can judge, these principles that we regard as fundamental are already everywhere accepted as imperative, except among the spokesmen of the military and annexationist party in Germany. This very public back and forth between the American president and German chancellor was set to continue, so long as the Germans possessed the advantage and Wilson continued to work for a better outcome. Chancellor Hertling may not have been impressed by Wilson's critique of his country's policy, 
but he could proclaim himself satisfied with the president's presentation of the four principles. Remember, just the summary, basically, of the 14 points. On the 25th of February, Chancellor Hertling responded in the Reichstag to what had been said, and after declaring his contentment with each of the principles, added a stringent final note. Only one reservation is to be made. These principles must not be proposed by the President of the United States alone, but they must also be recognised definitively by all states and nations. President Wilson, who reproaches the German Chancellor with a certain amount of backwardness, seems to me in his flight of ideas to have hurried far in advance of existing realities. Knowing what we know of the German collapse and defeat less than nine months later, it may appear brash and naive in the extreme to us that the German Chancellor should adopt such a defiant tone. Surely now was the time to ingratiate himself towards the Americans and bypass the British and French with an American friendship? Yet, in response to this, we must now underline two major points. First, from his perspective, Hurtling was only doing what the American president was doing. He was presenting his country as a friend of peaceful nations and not as an enemy of the peace. As Chancellor, this was his job, to reinforce the notion that Germany was fighting a defensive war against rapacious, greedy enemies and to peddle falsehoods where it suited him, just as his enemies did. Germany was not the problem, Hertling insisted. The problem was that other nations would not let Germany live in peace with what she had and insisted on always trying to take what Germany was entitled to. While Germany was accused of taking over Eastern Europe, she was instead releasing the Baltic states. Poland and the Ukraine from their former domination under Russia. Berlin thanked those states who had stayed neutral, and Hertling insisted that those neutral governments that still remained knew full well that they had nothing to fear from a Germany eager to end the war as soon as possible. The second point is unquestionably the most important, and it is that in early spring 1918, Germany was entering the final phase of its most striking military resurgence, That surge of energy, which seemed at first to guarantee victory, then to forestall defeat, and then to guarantee defeat. This resurgence came as a result of the collapse of Russia, and the news received by late February that, after having walked out of the negotiations at Brest-Litovsk, the Bolsheviks were now ready after all to sign on the dotted line. The peace treaty which followed, the infamous Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on the 3rd of March, seemed to demonstrate before all the world that Germany was far from defeated. As the soldiers from the east flooded westwards, it appeared on the contrary that it was the British and French who would require saving by the American Colossus. Chancellor Hurtling would certainly have taken pride in the fact that, after over three years of war against enemies on all sides, his nation was turning its attention towards what seemed, for all intents and purposes, like the end game. In March, Russia exited the war. In May, Romania followed her, and the borders were redrawn in Eastern and Central Europe in the months before the brittle nature of the German resurgence had become apparent. Even Germany's allies got in on the game, although with a tone usually less upbeat and more sombre. On the 2nd of April 1918, Count Chernin, the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, was able to note in a mood of optimism that God is my witness that we have tried everything possible to avoid a new offensive, The Entente would not have it. A short time before the beginning of the offensive in the West, Monsieur Clemenceau inquired of me whether and upon what basis I was prepared to negotiate. 
I immediately replied in agreement with Berlin that I was ready to negotiate and that as regards France I saw no other obstacle for peace than France's desire for Alsace-Lorraine. The reply from Paris was that France was willing to negotiate only on that basis. There was then no choice left. The gigantic struggle in the West has already begun. Austro-Hungarian and German troops are fighting shoulder to shoulder as they did in Russia, Serbia, Romania and Italy. We are fighting united for the defence of Austria-Hungary and Germany. Our armies will show the Entente that French and Italian aspirations to portions of our territory are utopias which will be terribly avenged. It is interesting to note in this pronouncement not just the tone of resilience and the belief in eventual victory, but also the sticking point of Alsace-Lorraine, which the Austrian foreign minister here claims was the stumbling block in the way of a settled peace. A few days later, and a full year on from his announcement of the American entry into the war, Woodrow Wilson performed another speech before Congress, wherein he insisted that a just peace was the American mission. This time though, rather than references to the peaceful German politicians in the Reichstag, Wilson alluded to the righteous and triumphant force which would militarily defeat the enemy and make him susceptible to such a peace. The back of the Central Powers would have to be broken, the President intimated, before proper and lasting peace negotiations could be entered into and before the principles which he valued could be pursued. This view was undoubtedly expressed to signify American solidarity with the Entente, which was, in early April, fighting tooth and nail against a determined German advance. But was this really what Wilson thought about Germany? In a confidential interview which he granted to leading foreign journalists on the 8th of April, Wilson declared that he felt no desire to march triumphantly into Berlin, and he wanted to see military action continue only until the enemy too was ready to accept negotiating terms which would lead to a just peace. According to Wilson, self-determination simply meant that the people of each country could consent to the form of government in force in their country. Wilson noted that the Germans seemed content with their present form of government. As the historian Klaus Schwabe noted, If this was so, then it was not his, Wilson's business, to force democracy on them. It was up to the Germans and the Germans alone, without the intervention of any foreign power, to change their form of government. Any hope that the Germans would see the light and do away with their old masters were ill-founded though, so long as there remained a chance for victory by the traditional means. By the time Wilson had confessed these beliefs to journalists on the 8th of April, he had already been made well aware of the German refusal to countenance negotiations for peace, which would not leave the German Empire intact. This included Alsace-Lorraine, that sticky situation which Wilson had declared himself unable to approve of since the 14 points. We should bear in mind that one of these 14 points, point 8, had even referenced the occupation of Alsace-Lorraine by the Germans as that wrong done by Prussia to France, which had unsettled the peace of the world for nearly 50 years. At the very least, until these seized provinces were returned, Wilson appreciated that no matter the government which set down roots in Germany, no conditional peace could be arranged. Notwithstanding these disappointing disagreements in Wilson's mind, and in Berlin's mind as well, connections and contacts were maintained through back channels. Within these contacts, often consisting of German-American businessmen and Swiss nationals, a common theme was present, 
The Germans wanted Wilson to command the peace negotiations, and they wanted Britain, France and Italy to be brought onto America's side before they would agree to any kind of conference. From March onwards, in addition, not merely Alsace-Lorraine, but also the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was a concern for Washington. If the discussion of the recent treaty with Russia was kept off the table, then Germany would be left empowered in the East and in a prime position to expand into the Pacific. Furthermore, with this power base behind her, it was impossible to imagine that she would be willing to countenance ideas of self-determination on terms set down by the Entente. Wilson, unsurprisingly, was not willing to trust that the Central Powers had the best interests of those Eastern European buffer states in mind when it dismantled the Russian Tsarist Empire and expanded its influence far eastwards. Only once Germany was humbled could Wilson's vision be realised, a prospect which was looking increasingly possible as summer 1918 loomed into view. Now that we've reached the halfway mark, this is a good sign because it means you've been following me all this way and that you're ready for the next part, hopefully, to break things up a little bit. And because this concept was so popular in our Korean War series, here is a little song for you guys. You may or may not recognize it. I mean, come on, it's probably the most famous song to come out of the First World War. It's A Long Way to Tipperary by Albert Farrington, released in 1915. Before we start, though, you should know that this song is brought to you by Patreon. Specifically, the fact that if I reach my goal on Patreon, I will be making a documentary about the Treaty of Versailles. Now, I haven't sorted out all the details yet. I'm not sure if I will actually go to the Palace of Versailles. That's probably unlikely. But I will release something that kind of captures the essence of what we're doing here in documentary form. There's several benefits for releasing a documentary rather than releasing just a podcast series. So I'm really, really interested to actually get into it and you can help make this dream a reality. If you would like to see a Treaty of Versailles documentary, if you would like me to produce one, then by all means go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For $2 a month, guys, you can be getting these episodes free from ads and complete with the fully referenced and everything else transcripts for your enjoyment. If you like to read along while listening along, and if you think that's a really weird thing to do, believe it or not, some people really do enjoy doing that. I am actually among them, sometimes. Sometimes I enjoy reading. Other times I prefer just to listen and kick back and relax as I hear about how our ancestors messed up everything 100 years ago. Anyway, that is just something I want you guys to be aware of. We are making a documentary all being well, and once we reach our goal on Patreon. The goal itself is two and a half grand a month, and we are currently at $1,400 a month. So, if you would like to play your role, by all means, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click the link in the description. Anyway, never mind all that stuff. If you would like to support, that would be fantastic. If not, I hope you enjoy this song. It's not the song of the week, but I think you'll enjoy it nonetheless. We will be back afterwards with the second part of this episode. Enjoy. Up to mighty London came an Irish man one day. As the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly, Strand and Leicester Square. Till Paddy got excited... Then he shouted to them there. 
By early August 1918, the Second Battle of the Marne had effectively broken the back of Germany's offensive capabilities. Always with a flair for the dramatic, Hindenburg's address to the soldiers on the 6th of September dealt not with the dire nature of the military situation or the looming doom of the Kaiser's government which would itself soon collapse. Instead, the de facto military dictator of Germany demonstrated his denial when he denounced the delivery of Allied propaganda into the country. What are the facts? In the East, we have forced peace, and in the West, we are also strong enough to do the same, despite the Americans. But we must be strong and united. Why does the enemy incite the coloured races against the German soldiers? Well, because he wants to annihilate us. The enemy also endeavours to sow dissension in our ranks by means of leaflets dropped from aeroplanes above our lines. Ten thousand of these are sometimes gathered up in a day. The enemy knows what strength resides in our state and empire. Hence, he seeks by his leaflets and false rumours to arouse distrust among us. There have always been some traitors to the fatherland, a few deliberately false, others unintentionally so. Most of these now reside in neutral countries, having deserted us to escape sharing in our battles and privations, and to escape being executed as traitors. Be on your guard, German soldiers. 
Analyzing the moral fiber of Hindenburg and Ludendorff is not the subject of this project, but the reluctance of this duo to accept the facts until it was too late almost certainly cost more needless casualties and prolonged the inevitable. From late August, taking advantage of a conference which discussed the exchange of German and American prisoners, the proposals for a liberal peace based on the acceptance of Wilson's 14 points and the potential democratization of Germany were floated with enthusiasm for the first time. By now, the resistance to relinquishing Alsace-Lorraine and to moderating the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had largely evaporated, and while there did remain military hardliners, with Ludendorff and Hindenburg foremost among them, the back-channel contacts which had been established over 1918 still kicked into high gear. The severing of official diplomatic ties between the two countries years before meant that, as we have seen, back-channel connections became the norm, with the Kaiser's government dividing its attention between the Reichstag in Berlin and his residence at Spa in occupied Belgium. Moreover, a great deal of effort was required to keep everyone sufficiently informed. Inevitably, several individuals were kept out of the loop, while others hoarded the information that they did have and made the majority of the decisions, requiring, as per Germany's constitution, only the Kaiser's approval to proceed. Throughout September 1918, German statesmen grappled with the dilemma which looming catastrophe and collapse on the battlefield posed. Different camps began to splinter off between different political wings, and the German high command was unable to contain them all. Groups advocating a fight to the end, groups advocating peace at any price with Wilson, groups advocating the retention of Alsace-Lorraine still but the relinquishing of all other gains, groups insisting on the preservation of Germany's eastern influence at the expense of Alsace-Lorraine, Groups advocating revolution, democratization, and the abdication of the Kaiser, all of these parties made their voices heard in their own way, and we don't have nearly enough time to trace all of their ideologies or efforts. What mattered was that in the end, following a great deal of soul-searching and back-channel negotiating, the new Chancellor, Max von Baden, signified his willingness to meet Wilson's demands before it was too late. This stance was reinforced by a striking performance on the second day of October, when all the danger and vulnerability of the country was laid bare. October 1918 was destined to be a month of grave and weighted proclamations, foremost among them being that Reichstag speech which opened this episode. The estranged nationalities of the Habsburg Empire even got in on this act, on the 18th of October, a significant message was sent out from Paris by the independent Czech-Slovak government in exile to the effect that At this grave moment, when the Hohenzollerns are offering peace in order to stop the victorious advance of the Allied armies and to prevent the dismemberment of Austria-Hungary and Turkey, and when the Habsburgs are promising the federalization of the empire and autonomy to the disaffected nationalities committed to their rule, we, the Czechoslovak National Council, recognized by the Allied and American governments as the provisional government of the Czechoslovak state and nation, in complete accord with the declaration of the Czech deputies made in Prague on the 6th of January 1918, and realizing that federalization, and still more, autonomy, means nothing under a Habsburg dynasty, do hereby make and declare this our Declaration of Independence. We do this because of our belief that no people should be forced to live under a sovereignty they do not recognize, and because of our knowledge and firm conviction that our nation cannot freely develop in a Habsburg mock federation, which is only a new form of denationalizing oppression 
under which we have suffered for the past 300 years. Germany's primary ally was being forced to watch as its polyglot empire disintegrated before its very eyes. Austria-Hungary would sign an armistice on the 3rd of November, and the Ottoman Empire sued for peace on the 30th of October. Bulgaria had been the first to sue for peace a whole month before, on the 29th of September. In Germany, not merely the empire, but the very state itself appeared to be unravelling. After centuries of enlightened and then constitutional absolutism, Kaiser Wilhelm II presided over the reimagining of his empire into one where the German people would have the final say. Wilhelm wrote to the Chancellor on the 28th of October to the effect that I return herewith for immediate publication the bill to amend the imperial constitution and the law of the 17th of March 1870 relative to the representation of the imperial Chancellor which has been laid before me for signature. On the occasion of this step, which is so momentous for the future history of the German people, I have a desire to give expression to my feelings. Prepared for by a series of government acts, a new order comes into force, which transfers the fundamental rights of the Kaiser's person to the people. Thus comes to a close a period which will stand in honour before the eyes of future generations. Despite all struggles between invested authority and aspiring forces, it has rendered possible to our people that tremendous development which imperishably revealed itself in the wonderful achievements of the war. In the terrible storms of the four years of war, however, old forms have been broken up, not to leave their ruins behind, but to make place for new, vital forms. After the achievements of these times, the German people can claim that no right which may guarantee a free and happy future shall be withheld from them. The proposals of the Allied governments, which are now adopted and extended, owe their origin to this conviction. I, however, with my exalted allies, endorse these decisions of Parliament in firm determination, so far as I am concerned, to cooperate in their full development, convinced that I am merely promoting the will of the German people. The Kaiser's office is one of service to the people. May, then, the new order release all the good powers which our people need in order to support the trials which are hanging over the Empire, and with a firm step win a bright future from the gloom of the present. In the event, Wilhelm's recasting of the German Empire as a proto-constitutional democracy, in some respects at least, powered by the people, would actually end with his abdication. But all of these acts were motivated by two concerns above all. Not at all from Wilhelm's actual love for democracy, or his genuine deep-seated desire to give power to the people. The first was the genuine fear of revolution at home in Germany a justified fear, as the tumultuous events of the first week of November were to demonstrate. The second was the idea that by democratising, Woodrow Wilson would be more amenable to treating Germany fairly. Where did this impression originate from? Well, we have to backtrack a little to the beginning of October to tell that story. The moment when the appeal had been sent out to the American president on the 6th of October represented a new departure for the Germans, but it was also the high point of naivety and optimism. It seemed possible that Wilson's terms, taken in their purest form, would not shame or humble Germany, and that military humiliation could be avoided. Of course, this optimism wouldn't last forever, but it is nonetheless remarkable to peer into this curious period of limbo in the twilight years of the First World War, where it was admitted that Germany certainly couldn't win the war, But this didn't necessarily mean she would have to catastrophically lose it. 
Subsequent revelations and strong doses of reality would shatter this illusion, but for a time, this strange mood of optimistic denial prevailed. The American reply to the German overture on the 6th of October appeared to inflate the expectations that Germany would not have to suffer undue harm from the armistice, and that Washington would even deal with Germany on equal terms to the Allies. It was to this American reply that the German government in its turn replied on the 12th of October 1918. Klaus Schwebe detailed the beginning of the struggle within Germany's government not only to end the war on terms Wilson could approve of, but also to end it on terms which the Germans could be satisfied with. He wrote, The talks leading up to the first German note on the 6th of October had already demonstrated that Germany would have to accept the 14 points without reservation as a basis for the peace treaty and not just recognise them as a point of departure for the negotiations. This was the point which Wilson wanted clarified, and the German cabinet now began to discuss what such acceptance would mean in concrete terms. It would mean entrusting the fate of Alsace-Lorraine, as well as Germany's eastern provinces, to the peace conference, and the peace conference meant, to some extent anyhow, Germany's enemies. The Reich, one figure explained, could accept the 14 points in toto and without reservation because the vagueness of their language left room for negotiation. If the peace conference always interpreted the 14 points to Germany's disadvantage, then the talks would simply fail. In other words, how the 14 points were interpreted would be a matter of relative military strength. Thus, the cabinet, like the supreme command, continued to regard the German note as a negotiating base, which would require only limited sacrifices from Germany. It was plain from this that the notion of unconditional surrender was a phrase unknown to Germany in late 1918. That is because such a term, in addition to the concept of fighting to the bitter end on the streets of Berlin, were virtual unknowns and visited themselves on the German people a generation later, following a still more apocalyptic war. Germany was defeated on the battlefield, but she was not destroyed completely or prostrate before the Allies. She acted as though the First World War had been little more than an unfortunate misadventure, which would have to be paid for, but which should not cost her everything. The scales would take a while to fall from everyone's eyes, but it is worth considering the possibility that those who did know how bad the situation was could not bring themselves to face it either. Those in denial and those out of the loop found common ground when they saw what they wanted to see in Wilson's proposals, and even though the last thing Wilson was offering was a get-out-of-jail-free card for Germany, it was certainly better than the consequences which the British and the French surely had in mind for Berlin. By the 12th of October, the German government had sent its reply to Wilson and indicated the terms upon which it would be willing to sue for peace. Taking advantage of the vague nature of some aspects of the 14 points, Chancellor Max von Baden and his peers also inserted another demand of their own, which would, they hoped, help to clarify matters. It was critically important that Woodrow Wilson, representing America, be joined in his stance by the other allies. If Britain and France would not signal their approval of American overtures, then what was the point in accepting Wilson's liberal peace plan? The German government believes, ran the passage on the 12th of October, that the governments of the powers associated with the United States also accept the position taken by President Wilson in his address. This was to prove the final German effort at making demands. 
Within two days, everything seemed to change in the President's tone. News of the sinking of the Leinster on the 10th of October reached Wilson soon after receiving the German note, and it stiffened the mood of his administration, since there had been British, Irish, American and other Allied soldiers on board, in addition to nurses, postmen and naval personnel who were among the 565 to die, in what remains the worst Irish naval disaster in history. At the very moment that the German government approaches the government of the United States with proposals for peace, its submarines are engaged in sinking passenger ships at sea, Wilson angrily exclaimed on the 14th of October. The act demonstrated that the Germans were not so beaten as to refrain from attempting to improve their position. No halt to conflict had been called by the German high command. No effort had been made to refrain from offending the Allies in the run-up to the potential peace negotiations. This explains the stiffening of Wilson's position over the second half of October, but the Leinster was merely one exclamation point on the shifting mood within the United States. According to Joseph Tumulty, Wilson's long-serving private secretary, the majority of the American people were of the opinion that Wilson should declare in a message to Congress that he could not negotiate with Germany until its present rulers had disappeared. These enemies of democracy had sown the seeds of war, Tumulty claimed, and they should not be permitted to gather the fruits of peace any more than men who had assumed control of a government by committing murder should be permitted to benefit from such a murder. Wilson was dismayed at this rise in American Prussianism, as he called it, but the combination of domestic pressure and pressure from the European associates ensured that the president was gradually forced to become more hardline and to water down the more generous or vague elements of his peace plan if they were to stand any chance of acceptance. Anglo-French intelligence efforts ensured that the French government was clued in to the back-channel German-American communications and Clemenceau was outraged at what he perceived as American attempts to go over the head of the Entente and to deal with Germany on equal footing. Wilson realised that it was now important to clarify this point and to harden his stance towards the hopeful Germans on the other end of the line. Perhaps Wilson had been too gentle in the past, but it is equally likely that the German statesmen and military men who were thoroughly in denial as to what was in store for them had just read and interpreted what they wanted from Wilson's communications. Either way, though, Wilson determined to nip it in the bud before these misunderstandings went any further. As Klaus Schwabe discerned then, the hardening of America's attitude towards Germany, as expressed in the Second American Note, was not the result of new insights into Germany's domestic politics or of the sinking of the Leinster. It reflected instead the concessions which Wilson had to make to the demands of American domestic politics and even more to the interests of the Allies, if he was to realise his peace aims. The fact that Wilson immediately released the text of his note to the press as soon as the note had been dispatched indicates that its public impact was of great concern to him. In his note of the 14th of October 1918 to the Berlin government, Wilson made it clear that the only armistice which the United States could accept was one approved by the Associates' military leaders under Ferdinand Foch's direction and one which provided airtight guarantees of associated military supremacy. The note of the 14th of October did more than make common cause with the Entente. It pointed towards the fact that only by replacing the current German government with a new, more democratic one could Germany proceed to a liberal peace agreement. Over the 16th to 20th of October, 
Germany's leading figures debated this development furiously, with some urging a fight to the end and invocation of national honour rather than giving way to what they perceived as Wilson's interference and chauvinism. As we know though, and as these German leaders came to accept, there was no alternative other than Wilson's way. Coming to terms with these bare facts led Wilhelm II to make his declaration on the democratisation of Germany on the 28th of October, and this was followed on the 9th of November by the announcement in the Reichstag that the Kaiser had abdicated. In actual fact, the enraged Wilhelm had never wanted to go that far, as he would later make plain in his official abdication at the end of November, by then safe in Dutch exile. In return for these short-term concessions, like the cessation of the U-boat campaign, the German civilians hoped to negotiate the opening of their ports, the end to the British blockade, and the replenishment of food stores from foreign imports, including the Americans. German militarists refused to relinquish the submarine card, which was the best chance they believed they had to leverage some kind of concessions in the future. This dispute effectively shattered the marriage of convenience between Germany's military and civilian elements. The Kaiser chose Max von Baden's cabinet over his generals, when the former threatened to resign if the submarines were not recalled. On the 23rd of October, though, Woodrow Wilson's response to the Chancellor's actions was received, and it was a disappointment. Wilson conceded that progress had been made in Germany, and that the secession of unrestricted submarine warfare was warmly welcomed, but he added that he did not believe that the principle of a government responsible to the German people had yet been fully worked out. And then Wilson added the observation, which effectively guaranteed Kaiser Wilhelm's declared reworking of the Constitution five days later that we saw. In his 23rd of October note, Wilson had said, It is evident that the German people have no means of commanding the acquiescence of the military authorities of the Empire in the popular will, that the power of the King of Prussia to control the policy of the Empire is unimpaired. Feeling that the whole peace of the world depends now on plain speaking and straightforward action, the President deems it his duty to say that the nations of the world do not and cannot trust the word of those who have hitherto been the masters of German policy, and to point out once more that, in concluding peace, the government of the United States cannot deal with any but the veritable representatives of the German people, who have been assured of a genuine constitutional standing as the real rulers of Germany. If it must deal with the military masters and the monarchical autocrats of Germany now, or if it is likely to have a deal with them later in regard to the international obligations of the German Empire, it must demand not peace negotiations, but surrender. This was the watershed moment in the communications between American and German negotiators. It was also the culmination of several months' worth of soul-searching in Washington, as Wilson got to grips with what was expected of him and what his electorate believed. Holding the German leaders, the Kaiser foremost among them, responsible for what had happened, neither the Americans nor the other Allied populations would be able to stand the sight of Wilhelm signing a peace treaty and then riding back off to Spa as before. There must be consequences, both for the military leaders that had lost to the war and the Kaiser who had represented the Central Powers' effort to attain European domination. This, at least, was the logic behind the demand. Whether Wilson wanted to topple Wilhelm's regime or not did not necessarily matter. What mattered was that he could not ignore the prevailing mood that insisted upon this regime change, and the Germans themselves could not ignore it either, because if they refused to adapt to the demands, then they would be met with closed doors, and, as Wilson had put it, not peace negotiations, 
but surrender. Public opinion, not for the last time then, had worked its magic on the proceedings. Germany would have to do two things. It would have to refrain from engaging in hostilities and it would have to blunt its own offensive capabilities. In addition, it would have to place the future of its empire and its security up for debate in a post-war conference. These were demands which Wilson insisted upon and which German leaders understood, even if they didn't like their implications. But what of the other demands, the not-peace negotiations but surrender line? Well, this line is often trotted out to underline the American president's intentions to mould some kind of post-war Germany into the constitutional democracy or Weimar Republic which it became. The reality, as we've learned to expect from this series, was less straightforward than this though, largely because some in Germany, upon reading this loaded reply from Wilson on the 23rd of October, took some time to actually decipher what the president had meant. As Klaus Schwebe notes, The setting up of peace negotiations and surrender as opposites in the closing sentences of Wilson's note was not altogether logical. The true opposite of peace negotiations is a dictated peace. The true opposite of surrender is an armistice. Did Wilson mean to imply here that the terms of both the armistice and of the future peace treaty would be determined by the amount of progress made in the democratization of Germany? But had he not already laid down his terms for the armistice when he insisted that the armistice render Germany incapable of military action until the peace was concluded? Does that not amount to the same thing as surrender? And all this was to be the case regardless of internal developments in Germany. Was Wilson unwilling from the outset to trust guarantees which affected German domestic politics? If that is the case, why did he go on at such length about the issue of democratic reforms in Germany? Since he had already established the nature of the armistice, the only thing he could have had in mind was the future peace treaty. Was he promising the Germans peace based on his principles, provided that his negotiating partners, now and later, were in fact representatives of the Reichstag majority? If so, what were his criteria for determining the genuineness of their mandate? This was the key question which puzzled the Berlin policymakers to the point of distraction. What had Wilson meant by the phrase, a genuine constitutional standing for the representatives of the German people? Was he suggesting a parliamentary monarchy, a republic? How did he envisage the transition from Bismarck's constitution of 1871 to the parliamentary democracy which he desired? Should Germany continue with the constitutional changes which it had already begun? Would Wilson be satisfied with Reichstag legislation to change the constitution, or did he want more than this? Did he want the Kaiser to abdicate? Did he want the whole House of Hohenzollern to renounce its claim to the throne? Wilson wanted a lot of things. He wanted peace, he wanted democratic reforms to sweep through Germany, he wanted to find some way of guaranteeing the staying power of these reforms, he wanted the Entente not to alienate Germany by making too harsh a peace, and he wanted to ensure that his democratic party succeeded in the upcoming elections. All of these concerns, though, were secondary in comparison to one which had profound effects on what followed in Versailles. Woodrow Wilson, more than anything else, wanted to be the arbiter of the peace negotiations that followed, and for this to happen, Wilson had to be needed by both sides. If a total victory was achieved by the Entente, Wilson wouldn't be needed in the aftermath, as the British and French would simply dictate to the central powers. However, an armistice achieved soon would not only provide the United States with the chance to leverage its continued aid to the Entente, it would also provide Wilson with a platform 
which he could stand on, and from this position, he could remake Europe in his own image. A piece where Germany was shattered, the guaranteed outcome of the war lasted into the new year, would grant Wilson no advantages. However, an armistice, where the United States brought the two sides together and posed as the unbiased mediator, simply out to make a good deal, would grant Wilson an unrivaled opportunity. To avail of this opportunity, he did not only require an ideal situation in Europe, he also needed to be strong at home. The elections for November 1918 had the potential to wreck his long-term plans if Congress was handed over to the Republicans. This is indeed what happened. The Republicans won the Senate and the House of Representatives on the 5th of November 1918. And this political loss at home was a big part of the reason why the Treaty of Versailles was not properly ratified by Congress, along with the League of Nations, which Wilson had for so long advocated. Wilson intended to meet this threat to his party's position by sharpening his tone and demanding the democratization of Germany and the abdication of Wilhelm. Wilson even referred to the Kaiser by his first name, breaking a taboo in the process. With his sharpened tone, Wilson could dispense with the vicious rumours peddled by Republicans that the President was soft on the Germans, and that he was a cowardly pacifist at heart who didn't have the stomach to do what needed to be done. Thus, Wilson was fighting a battle on two fronts. The first was against his own allies in Europe to make peace on terms acceptable to them before the weight of their supremacy could fully tell in a shattered Germany. And the second front was against his own people, or more specifically, his political rivals, who looked for any opportunity to reverse the democratic gains in Congress which had propelled Woodrow Wilson to the presidency in the first place. Considering these struggles, one wonders whether Germany was the least of the American president's problems. At the very least, we know that the method and tone of the negotiations with Germany were crucially important for the future. Germany was consumed by revolutionary fervour in the first week of November, an eruption which vindicated the opinions of many in Wilson's circle, who believed as early as the summer of 1918 that the final total German defeat would ultimately be facilitated, not by military destruction, but by a collapse at home. This was another reason for Wilson's insistence on dealing with legitimate German figures representing a democratic government. He did not want to be tied down to an imperial government in Berlin which might be swept away with the tide of revolution. Better to anticipate this revolution by giving the people some of what they wanted first. Indeed, it is worth considering the possibility that the limited German efforts made at democratising the country, seen, remember, in the Kaiser's pronouncement on the 28th of October, and ending with his abdication less than a fortnight later, all of this may well have saved Germany from complete collapse. Democratised and revitalised by the prospect of a new future with democratic partners, the new German civilian government and its defenders were eventually able to defeat the Spartacist revolution, which erupted shortly after Wilhelm's abdication on the 9th of November. Granted, it is entirely possible that the German people would have defeated this German flavour of Bolshevism regardless, but as the revolt in the Kiel Canal on the 3rd of November and the eruption in Munich on the 7th of November demonstrated, revolutionary fervour was spreading. By the time of the 9th of November, just before his abdication, Wilhelm was made aware that 10 major German cities were in the revolutionaries' hands, in addition to much of the railway systems. But the promise of free and liberal democracy at least gave the defenders of the old Germany something to fight for, other than the nostalgic rememberings of past greatness. 
We have talked a great deal about the American president in this episode about Germany's fall, because, as has hopefully become clear by now, we simply cannot talk about the German collapse or the German efforts to make peace without talking about the president who made the armistice possible in its eventual form. This survey also hopefully reveals something of the sheer scale of detail which is available on the final month of the war. The book by Klaus Schwabe, who I've mentioned a few times and whose name I've probably butchered also several times, sorry about that Klaus, examines only a six-month period and yet is still more than 500 pages long. And even then there are certain questions which still need to be covered. It should be added into the mix, on top of everything else, that Germany was saved from a great deal of humiliation thanks to the circumstances taking place next door to it in Russia. The arrival of the Bolsheviks and their destruction of the old order deeply concerned the West, and it compelled Wilson to urge clemency towards Germany on more than one occasion, out of fear that too harsh a peace would ferment revolution and would destroy Germany for generations to come. To a beleaguered, distraught German population, it was imperative that Wilson gave them and their leaders something to cling to, otherwise hopeless resistance or a final collapse into anarchy, poverty and civil war might be the result. Nobody wanted that, and the Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, made this apparent in one of his memos to a subordinate in late October 1918, wherein it was noted, There are two great evils at work in the world of today. Absolutism, the power of which is waning, and Bolshevism, the power of which is increasing. We have seen the hideous consequences of Bolshevik rule in Russia. The possibility of a proletariat despotism over Central Europe is terrible to contemplate. Democracy without education and autocracy with education are the great enemies we have to face today. But I believe the former is the greater evil, since it is destructive of law and order. How can we best utilise the hostility of these two principles, which are at opposite poles of political thought, so that both will be weakened? How much encouragement should we give radicalism in Germany in the effort to crush out Prussianism? This fear of Bolshevism did not compel American statesmen to behave in the way we may expect, though. While Wilson essentially held the keys to the German castle by late October 1918, he maintained radio silence and issued no more communications with Berlin for several days, during which time the Germans tied themselves in knots and became more demoralised, and, short of official answers from Wilson, interpreted his demands themselves. Woodrow Wilson's behaviour here was intended to weaken the resolve of the Germans, a task which was successfully achieved, it has to be said. Neither the Kaiser nor his Chancellor understood what had been meant in much of Wilson's pronouncements. You'll note that Wilson tended to be vague at the best of times, and during his negotiations with Germany, this vagueness was turned up even higher. What the Germans did know was that time was of the essence, and on the 28th of October, Kaiser Wilhelm tried to make the best of things by reimagining Germany in its new democratised form, as we alluded to earlier, which appeared to usher in a new constitutional monarchy. Woodrow Wilson had another reason for leaving the Germans to their own devices, though. From late October, the United States was involved in official, preliminary discussions for an armistice with its European associates. No back-channel German-American talks could be allowed to undercut these discussions, and they represented the first concrete step towards the formulation of peace terms which the Allied powers could agree on. Representing Wilson and pushing for the principles set down in the 14 points, in addition to moderation towards Germany, was Edward House, an honorary colonel and Wilson's very good friend, who had arrived in France on the 26th of October and proceeded 
to make his presence felt in the Supreme War Council. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.